please turn in your Bibles with me to the 23rd Psalm. Word of our Lord from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Grant us, O Lord, to trust in You with all of our hearts. For just as You always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so also You never forsake those who make their boast in Your mercy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with You, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Psalms are one of the Old Testament classics. They're not just one of the Old Testament classics, they're the greatest of the Old Testament classics. What I mean by an Old Testament classic is they're the, the classics of the Old Testament are those Old Testament writings that are found most often in the New Testament writings. You find Jesus quoting the Psalms more than any other Old Testament work. You find the epistles littered with allusions from the Psalms, direct quotes from the Psalms. They are classics. They're the most beloved to most people. And this one, the 23rd, is the most beloved of them all. We love the Psalms. We have an affinity for them. We connect with them. We, we find that they're beautiful. We find that they are holy. We find that they are expressive of those longings we have in us and those whispers that we find in our own hearts. We love them. We connect with them. And we love and connect with them because of really three things we find as poetry, they're beautiful. They're lovely. Now some of them are a little more lovely and more beautiful than others. Some of them are scary and some of them are filled with anger. 
But we find as, as, as poetry, they, they are, they're beautiful. They don't rhyme like our poetry normally does. They're not Dr. Seuss. Uh, they're not, um, they are filled with puns and a bunch of different literary devices that we find in our typical poetry. But we recognize that they're written thousands of years ago and that they're written by people of a different culture and so they don't write poetry like we do. But somehow, some way, we still find them to be beautiful. We're caught up in their illusions. We see what the psalmist describes. We feel what he feels. As poetry, the psalms are not chapters. They're poems. Specifically, they're prayers set as poems. And so when we refer to Psalm 23, we refer to Psalm 23. Not Psalms chapter 23, but Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm. They're, most of them have stanzas. You'll notice that this 23rd has three stanzas. Notice the movement that takes place through those stanzas. The first is the psalmist declaring something about the Lord. The second is the psalmist declaring something to the Lord. And then lastly, he ends with a conclusion, so to speak. We love them for their literary beauty. We love them as the Word of God. We receive them as Scripture. They are part of God's Word to us. God has revealed Himself in the words of the psalmist. God has disclosed Himself, shown Himself to us. He gives us His Word. And the interesting thing about that is, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer pointed out, they are at once the Word of God to us and yet also the Word of man to God because these are prayers. They are our hymns. The band did a lovely job uh, playing and singing House of God Forever, which is the 23rd Psalm, rewritten and restructured, set to modern music. A beautiful, beautiful song. And that's originally what these psalms were. They, the psalms were the hymn book of the Hebrew people. Many of them, specifically later on in the book of Psalms, you'll find uh, little, little titles that say, A Song of Ascent. Like to ascend, like to ascend the stairs. But rather than ascending just these stairs... This was ascending the, the, the holy hill, Mount Zion, as the Hebrew people were headed to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. They would sing these hymns together in triumph, in adoration of who God was and what He had done. And so, while they are God's Word to us, they are given to us by God to be our word back to Him. Our prayers to Him. That's why we connect with them so well. We find the psalmist feeling like we feel. I don't, you can call that a pity party or something, but you know, when, when pity loves company, or mis- misery loves company, and pity loves com- company as well. You know, when we're down, we want to know that we're not the only one that's down. Now, we don't want others to... You know, belittle our being down by saying, oh yeah, I know, I feel the same way. What are you talking about? This is my pity party. Leave me alone. But we love it when we hear in the psalmist anger. Because we know we've got a little bit of anger in us as well. 
We love it when we hear that the psalmist is, is on a high and he's you know, flying on the clouds and he's living the good life because we think, man, yeah, there are times in my life where I feel like that. For every, every human emotion and feeling, there is a psalm. You find the psalmist ecstatic with joy and you find the psalmist ecstatic with rage and anger. You find the psalmist trusting God to be his shepherd, leading him even through death's dark valley. And you find the psalmist saying, I'm surrounded by my enemies and I've reached the end of my rope. We love the psalms for their literary beauty as poetry for their presence in the Word of God as Scripture, and for the fact that they are our prayers and our hymns, our songs of joy and our songs of trouble. And they speak to our experience. The psalmist knows what we felt like. The psalmist knows the whole spectrum of human emotion. This morning, as we look specifically at the 23rd Psalm, I want to simply draw your attention to three aspects of this beloved Psalm. The first aspect is the identity of the shepherd. Notice who is the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. If you've been taking note about my use of the term Yahweh over the last several weeks, you'll notice that that term is what the Hebrew term is here. The Lord in small caps. Yahweh is my shepherd. The self-revealing Holy One of Israel is my shepherd. The One who has made Himself known. The One who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. The One who rescued His people from Egypt. The one who said, I will lead you into a land that I promised to your forefather Abraham. The one who made promises to Abraham. And the one who fulfilled them. This Holy One of Israel is my shepherd. I shall not want. David read this morning from John chapter 10 where Jesus declares that He is the Good Shepherd. And you'll notice that at the end of that discourse with, with the, uh, the, the leaders of Israel, they take up stones to try to kill Him. He doesn't run. He says, "What? you're going to kill me because of the good that I've done? Now, come on. They declare, now we're going to kill you because you've made yourself to be God by declaring that you are His Son. See, those who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, they they haven't read their Gospels. No, Jesus didn't walk around with a, uh, 
with a sticker on his on his chest that said, "Hello, my name is God." But the Hebrew people knew exactly what he was claiming. Thomas, seeing the risen Christ, declared, "My Lord and my God." The leaders of Israel were prepared to stone him and kill him because he made himself to be God. Throughout John's account of the gospel, you find Jesus using a uh, kind of a play on words as he makes his seven declarative statements concerning his identity. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I am the door. And on and on. He's using a phrase that connects him, associates him with Yahweh. It is important. It is important that we as sheep know who our shepherd is. Because it is because of who our shepherd is that the psalmist is able to declare, I shall not be in want. Because this shepherd, this good shepherd, is the one who also is able to meet our needs. And so the second aspect that I want to look at with you this morning is what are the blessings of this shepherd? The psalmist speaks of Yahweh's provision in his life and His protection over his life. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. My cup runs over. This shepherd is able to meet his needs even beyond what those needs might be. He's able to, prov- to provide. He's able to protect. He's able to restore. You restore my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Righteousness is not, it's not some individual effort. It's not a life that we live in isolation from others. It's not about being good enough. It's not about being separate enough. Righteousness is about proper relationships. It's about relating to God properly so that we then are able to relate to others properly. The man who declares, I've not done this, I've not done that, I've stayed away from this, I've never done that, I've never used this word or that word, and yet has horrible relationships with others and cares nothing for the church, he lacks righteousness. Because righteousness is about relationships being restored. He restores my soul and He leads me in the paths of righteousness. And notice why He does, for His name's sake. 
for the sake of His holy name. Because He is Yahweh. Because He is this God. Because He has that kind of character. He redeems and rescues and blesses His people. You anoint my head with oil. Oil in the Old Testament was a sign of the Holy Spirit and to be anointed with oil as was King David who penned this psalm. It was to remind the one anointed and to remind the anointer and to remind the people who knew of the anointing that God's Spirit and therefore His authority rested upon this one. It is because of the name of this one who has anointed. It is because of His name. It is because of who He is in leading us into the paths of righteousness that the psalmist is able to declare, I shall not want because my cup runs over. The blessings of the great shepherd go beyond though just material blessings and go, goes beyond just strength and power and relationships put back together. The blessings of the shepherd lead also into his guidance because he is the one who goes before. He is the one who leads. He is the one who is with his sheep. Which brings us to the third aspect. The presence of the shepherd. How does the great shepherd lead? This is a psalm of David, the shepherd king. Though he was made king of Israel, he grew up as a little shepherd boy. You remember, he was the ruddy one. He was the, the cute little boy that was out tending sheep in Jesse's household. David knew what it meant to be a shepherd. And he knew that what it meant to be a shepherd was not to be the one who owns the farm. But it means to be the one who's out there with with sheep. That's a shepherd's job. Is to be with the sheep. The shepherd's job is not to do the paperwork and all the calculating to make sure that you know we've got the money to put up the fences. The shepherd's job is to be with the sheep. The shepherd's job is to be there with them, to protect them, to provide for them, to find the still waters so that those skittish sheep have a place to drink and find nourishment. The shepherd's job is to lead them to green pastures. His job is to be there with the sheep. That's how He leads. Jesus, when He said, I am the good shepherd, during John 10, I encourage you, go back and read that whole chapter. This afternoon, it won't take you five minutes to read it, I promise you. Unless you're really slow, it might take you ten minutes. It'd take me about ten minutes to read it. Most of you guys, though, you're quicker readers than I am, I'm sure. 
Jesus said, when I entered the pasture, it's funny that he makes two I am statements in that chapter. He declares that he is the good shepherd, but he says, I'm also the door. I, not only am I the one out there with the sheep, I'm the, re- the reason they're able to get into the pasture to begin with. I'm the door, I'm the gate. I'm the, the way they get into the pasture, and yet I'm also the good shepherd. I'm there with them. He said, I entered the pasture and my sheep know me. They recognize my voice. They hear me calling. And they know it's me and not a stranger. They know it's not a hireling. They know it's not a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. They know it's not the enemy. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they might have life and that they might have abundant life. Not that they might just get by, but that they might find green pastures and still waters, that their cup might run over. The presence of the shepherd is with his sheep. He leads them because he's with them. And that's why this psalm we typically associate with funerals. Most of us have heard this psalm shared at a funeral and have rarely heard it preached on a Sunday morning when we're declaring the Lord's risenness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. shepherd is with his people even in the midst of death and suffering. You know, when we're going through death and suffering, when bad things happen, when a loved one passes away, or when we're seeing that a loved one is surely soon going to pass away, Normally the last thing we need and the last thing we want is someone to talk. Normally the first thing we need and the first thing we want is simply someone. We don't want their words, we want their nearness. We don't want them telling us God's got a purpose here. We want them to sit and weep with us. We want them to just listen to the stories about what this person was like that we love so much. You know, Death's Dark Valley is... It is traveled by the one dying and it's traveled by those who hold that one who's dying in their hearts. And the psalmist says, even though I am tasting the sting of death, I will fear no evil, not because you do things for me, not because of your blessings, not because of who you are, but because of your presence. Verse 
because of that blessing, you are here with me. The presence of the great shepherd as he leads his people. But it's there also, notice the psalmist says, among my enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's kind of odd. With all the shepherd talk, with all the, the, the allusions to being out in the field, finding still waters and green pastures, and being led down paths, the psalmist says, this great shepherd of mine, this one whom I follow, he leads me, through death's dark valley and He leads me ultimately to a table that He set before me even while surrounded by all my enemies. God has a way of doing things. He's got a very uncanny way of doing things. And He's set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, He told His disciples that He was giving them a meal by which to remember His death. Giving them a meal by which they would know His presence to them in the midst of life. And He told them that that meal was a foretaste of a meal that was to come. He said, I will not partake of this until I do so in my Father's house in glory. And the book of Revelation tells us that there's being prepared for us a table and a feast like we can't imagine. The marriage supper of the Lamb where all of the ransomed of God will gather from every nation, from every tribe, from every language, from every century, all of God's people would be gathered to a great banquet table and will feast on a meal. And Christ left for His church a meal of remembrance, declaring what He had done and looking forward to what He was going to do. And the church remains in the world. You only have to watch about a minute and a half of Fox News or CNN or probably even MSNBC to realize that the church is surrounded by enemies. Christians and Christian churches and Christian monuments and Christian relics from ages and ages ago are being destroyed right and left systematically. And God prepares a table before us. You know, a table, we normally associate it, of course, with food. 
my kids might associate the, uh, the dining room table with schoolwork. It's where they do their math and their science and all that unless Lindsay's taking them out outside for experiments and story time and that sort of thing. But we typically associate a table with food. We expect there to be food when we gather around the table. In fact, if I say we're going to gather around the table, you guys expect there's probably going to be meat and vegetables, at least the meat. We can do without the vegetables. There Hopefully there will be some bread, something to drink. You know, that's, that's the connection we make with tables. And with tables, since we connect them to food, we connect them also with fellowship. We've got a saying in our house, food means fellowship. I don't care if you don't want to eat or not, sit. We're hanging out, we're talking, we're seeing how the day was. Talking about tomorrow. That fellowship we typically associate with a time of rest. A time to relax. Time to slouch a little bit. Put your elbows on the table or off the table, depending on you know which, which you think is most appropriate. I think it's the French, you don't touch the table with your elbows, but the Italians, you got your elbows in, you're getting messy and everything. The psalmist says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You tell me, come and eat. Come and rest. Come and talk. Come and spend some time. David, this is an awfully big commercial for the cookout this afternoon. If you haven't planned to join us, plan to join us. We're going to be there. It's going to be good food and good fellowship. But as the Lord prepares the table before us in the presence of our enemies, as He opens up His table to His people for His meal in His world, He invites us to come to dine. You know, the shepherd, traditionally, the sheep exist for the shepherd's pleasures. Why does a shepherd keep sheep? So that he can shear them and make clothing and so that he can kill them and make food. Jesus, when he declares that he is the good shepherd, I I went back and did a, a real quick count. At least five times he says that he lays down his life for the sheep or he gives up his life. For the sheep, at least five times, just in a, a handful of verses. I mean, over and over and over again. And I imagine that the, his hearers are thinking, "What in the world is he talking about? The shepherd doesn't doesn't give his life for the sheep. The sheep give their life for the shepherd." Again, God has a way of doing things. He has a way of taking images and turning them on their heads. It was uh, G.K. Chesterton who said that that's what paradox is. Paradox is, is a uh, paradox is truth standing on its head so as to gain attention. Kind of being a big baby. Jesus says, "My Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep." 
Because I live for them and I die for them. And as He's prepared a table before us, and as He says, come and dine, He tells us, come and eat of this bread, for this is My body. Come and drink of this cup, for this is My blood. He says to us, the sheep of His pasture, as our great shepherd, He says, come and feast on me in your hearts by faith. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Let's pray.